Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Perhaps this is how the framers wanted it, but has there ever been a time where more issues with the potential to more deeply divide us, has there ever been a time where more of them seemed so likely to head to the same place, the U.S. Supreme Court? I'm talking about the Second Amendment and the inevitable gun rights issues surely to come out of the growing Enough is Enough movement. I'm talking about gerrymandering, the crazy geographical games that determine who sits in our state legislatures and Congress. That's already in front of the justices. And lurking there in the distance, potentially the biggest of them all, can a sitting president be indicted? And yet, more and more, the U.S. Supreme Court feels less like a beacon of neutrality and more like yet another politicized branch of the U.S. government. How do we get here? As you'll hear in my conversation with Rick Hassan, the person we might want to thank isn't even here anymore, Antonin Scalia. About Rick. Rick Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He also runs the Election Law blog. Rick's latest book, The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption. Hassan presents a new view of Scalia, not a political one, but a critical one looking at how this strict originalist, this justice who argued that the Constitution's meaning can be found through the original words, may not have always practiced what he preached. More directly, Hassan also argues, as you'll hear, that Scalia was the Donald Trump or the Newt Gingrich of the court. He was the ultimate disruptor, and much of the politicization the court faces today traces directly to Scalia himself. It's a great conversation. But before I begin with Rick, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, the Cook Political Report. We all saw the results from Pennsylvania 18 and Connor Lamb. Is that blue wave underway? And what about other issues like immigration, tariffs, and guns? And what's in store for the next stage of congressional map drawing? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. And one last item before we begin. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and I'm really grateful. So if you like these conversations, you know my ask. I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, of course, my parallel ask. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Rick Hassan. Rick, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's great to be back. So the whole premise of your book caught me by surprise, which is only part of what makes it so good. Um, Scalia's whole image is consistency, at least to, you know, an outside court observer such as myself, conservative consistency. I mean, pugnacious, sure, that, you know, we always kind of felt that. But, you know, almost like the judicial Ronald Reagan, this this conservative consistency. And yet your take is he was highly inconsistent. Tell me about that. 
Well, let me start off by saying that I think all of the justices are inconsistent. Who, who uh, amongst us? On, who, who amongst us, really? <laughs> right. Uh, if you're on the court for almost 30 years, it's really hard to be completely consistent. I mean, it's hard to even remember all the things you probably did over 30 years. Uh, but Scalia was different because Scalia, as you said, held himself out as having found the holy grail of interpretation. He had a particular way of reading the Constitution, what's called originalism or original public meaning, and a certain way of reading statutes, uh, which uh, he called textualism. And uh, he claimed that these would give definitive answers or at least better answers than another system. And in fact, anyone using something else would be acting illegitimately. And yet, as I show in the book, Sometimes he let these originalist or textualist principles give way to other things like respect for precedent uh, or other values that he might have had. Sometimes he just ignored originalist uh, or textualist arguments and went down a completely different road. And in fact, consistently I show in the book when he was called on this, either by his clerks in memos or in public, he just laughed it off and shrugged off the question and said, well, nobody's perfect and, and moved on. And so, in fact, the justice known for consistency was quite inconsistent and decided cases, as many or all of the justices do, at least sometimes, in line with his conservative values. What is inconsistency and what is hypocrisy? Well, I think the way I would distinguish those, uh, and uh, I, I want to be clear, I'm not calling Scalia a hypocrite. I think someone who is a hypocrite is someone who is consciously aware that they are taking contrary positions and maybe do so for cynical reasons. I don't really delve into the motivations of Scalia in this book uh, because it's not really a biography as much as it's a biography of his ideas. So I can't really speak to what motivated him, uh, what he was thinking uh, in his mind. Uh, but I've seen no evidence that he was uh, a cynical political hack using these tools of interpretation to reach uh, results that would align with his politics. I think he was trying to do his best, uh, but in trying to do his best, uh, he often deviated uh, from what he had done in the past. So I, I think that's an important distinction. And one of the things I'm trying to do is to show the complexity of the justice. I, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I did an event at the Brennan Center in, in New York City, and they tweeted out a link to the program and said, come here about Justice Scalia's complexities. And the first tweet after that was a response of someone saying, Scalia was a right-wing political hack. Mm -hmm. And the second response was, Justice Scalia simply applied the law. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was uh, the best justice. And I thought, you know, this really encapsulates it. He's either a villain or a hero uh, to people on the left or the right. And in fact, I think the story is much more complex. He was complex. He was not consistent. Um, but he was so influential that it was worth taking a very close look at what he did and how he did it and, and uh, what that's going to mean for the future of the court and the law in the United States. Yeah, that is among the really uh, kind of incredible things about him. It is true widely. But on him in particular, it seems where you sit um, depends on where you stand. And, uh, you know, those two tweets that you just mentioned, um, you know, that, that's, that feels completely accurate. Uh, it depends on, you know, depending on what perspective you're coming from, 
uh, that seems to determine exactly how one feels uh, about him. So, so give me some examples. What are what are cases or arguments? What really stands out when you say he's uh, um, contradictory? Uh, give, give me some examples. Well, let's take a really important example, which is uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War. One of the Reconstruction Amendments. One of the things in the Fourteenth Amendment is the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, pretty brief. Just says states can't deprive any person of equal protection of the laws. Not clear exactly what that means. Um, how do you understand what those words mean? Well, Scalia said uh, we should look at uh, originalism, original public meaning. What do the words mean? So, for example, he has said that uh, despite the fact that it just uses the word equal, that the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, did not protect against sex discrimination. And the reason he said that is because at the time that the um, uh, 14th Amendment was passed, the um, uh, people who were living in the time would not have thought it would have protected sex discrimination. Okay, so he's not just looking at the words, he's looking at the context. Now let's contrast that with what we know about what Congress did at the time of the 14th Amendment with African Americans. One thing we know is that they had segregated schools. Uh, the Congress approved legislation separating uh, people uh, on the basis of race. We also know that Congress passed what we would today call affirmative action laws, uh, saying that um, you would uh, you could give preferences to African Americans because of their prior uh, uh, history of slavery. What what was Scalia's position on those issues? Well, first he said that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided and that separate but equal was unconstitutional. I think I think that's a great thing to say. But if you're asking what the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment was, separate but equal was just fine. And on the question of affirmative action, Scalia was a big opponent of affirmative action, said just read the text. It says equal, and that means you can't give preferences on the basis of race. And yet when one of his clerks called him on this question, wrote him a memo and said there's great historical research showing that the Congress after the passage of the 14th Amendment actually provided affirmative action programs, you might not agree, but you should at least respond and explain why originalism doesn't dictate uh, the outcome here. He never responded. And so just in the area of equal protection, which is such an important part of American law, when we think about the civil rights movement and all the laws that have been passed to try to create equality, here was Scalia sometimes applying text, sometimes applying uh, a social context, and sometimes doing neither. And uh, you know, I think that really shows you how uh, he was not the kind of perfectly consistent robot that he might have portrayed himself to be when he was applying the law. And, I mean, I can hear the people who uh, tweeted, such as the first person who responded to your uh, you know, to the Brendan statement, uh, people who stand against Scalia, as saying, well, see, and, and by the way, Hassan, that actually does sound like hypocrisy. That doesn't sound like um, inconsistency or being contradictory. That sounds like picking and choosing. And when equal means something that I want it to mean, then it means that. And when it means something that I don't want it to mean, I choose a different definition. Um, how, how do you how, how do you parse that for me? Well, uh, I you know uh, as I said, I can't get into the motivations, but I, what I can do is point to other cases where he did seem to go against type. So, for example, in some areas of the criminal law, uh, he has been very protective of criminal defendants, even though we uh, you know we know his personal views were very tough on law, law and order. So he had a very strict view of the right of criminal defendants to confront witnesses against them. 
He had views of search and seizure law, which would protect criminal defendants uh, against certain kinds of searches and seizures. He famously pointed to the flag burning case where he said that burning the flag is First Amendment protected activity, even though if he were king, he would ban the burning of the flag. And he decided a or he voted in a punitive damages case saying that the federal court should not get involved and that plaintiffs of state law allows it should be able to get whatever punitive damages uh, they can get a jury to award. And so um, he did not always play to type. He seemed to struggle with these issues sometimes. Uh, but you know, I think the the way to think about Scalia uh, is uh, uh, comes from the clerk who told that story about the the um, memo that was written about affirmative action. Uh, he he called his reflections on Scalia the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm. That is, there were things about him that were very admirable. There were things that were much less admirable, and there were things where you were just frustrated uh, in uh, his failure to engage on some of these questions. And how were his interactions with the other justices? And how did those interactions either support or uh, go against this idea of consistency? So one of the things we haven't really talked about much is that Scalia, not only was he a a great writer in terms of being able to turn a phrase in a way that would make things interesting, he he would also um, use his language to attack other justices and other ideas. So, for example dissenting in a 2015 case recognizing the right of same-sex couples to marry, the Obergefell case, Justice Scalia wrote a footnote where he said, if ever for the price of a fifth vote, I'd have to join in, and then he quotes some of Justice Kennedy's flowery language from the majority. If I ever had to do that to get a fifth vote, I would hide my head in a bag. Hmm. He said that the court had gone from the, you know, the the great writing of uh, Justice Marshall and Justice Story to the aphorisms of a fortune cookie. So he could be very nasty and sarcastic and caustic. He would uh, not only make an ad hominem attack, but he would argue constantly that the other justices were not following the law. Uh, they were being super legislators. Only he was following the law. Or, or, so, even, or even not acting in good faith necessarily, such as yes, in uh, that, King versus Burwell. That's right. Sometimes he accused the uh, the justices of, of just favoring certain laws and favoring certain uh, positions because that's what is uh, politically or ideologically convenient. And yet he was a charming individual. He had a very close friendship with Justice Ginsburg, which went back many decades, even mm-hmm. though they were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Justice Kagan, uh, one of the newer justices who is uh, on the liberal side of the court, went hunting with Scalia. Um, Justice Justice Ginsburg summarized it by saying, you know, I, I love the guy, but sometimes I'd like to strangle him. And Justice <laughs> Sotomayor, another liberal justice, said, um, you know, he was like family, but sometimes if I had a baseball bat, I don't know what I would do. Um, and so, you know, he was able to use his charm in a way that, uh, uh, you know, that's just what Nino did. And people often brushed it off, although it was quite clear that justice like Justice O'Connor uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was a swing justice on the court uh, until she left in the mid-2000s, that she was put off by uh, Scalia. I couldn't find any evidence, though, that it ever uh, cost Scalia a vote, where, for example, he would have had a majority and someone just out of spite decided not to vote in that way. And he said that never happened. The big unanswered question is whether if he would have been a little more politic and polite whether he would have been able to write more majority opinions. He actually wrote very few majority opinions in blockbuster cases. 
Um, and, you know, his pugnaciousness uh, may have cost him the ability to have even greater influence across a wider swath of the political spectrum. Yeah, that, that felt to me very, very interesting as well. So on the one hand, um, there was that. There was and, – and you point this out, how he really didn't write very many majority opinions and so therefore uh, may have um, missed out on opportunities to, to be influential in that way. On the other hand, um, you write very early on the, in the book um, about – the depth of his influence and potentially his ongoing influence. You, you write a study by Professor Frank Cross of a 10-year set of opinions from the Rehnquist Court showed that those written by Scalia, majority opinions, concurrences, and dissents, were more than twice as likely to be cited by lower court judges in the decade after they were issued than the opinions of other justices who served with him during that period. So on the one hand, not so many majority opinions, and yet on the other hand, you know, th- when he wrote something, it was, it was influential in the lower courts. Right. Uh, so David Cole of Georgetown Law School wrote soon after Scalia died that he was the most influential justice without influence in Supreme Court history. And I think <laughs> there's another contradiction. When we think about what makes a justice influential, usually we ask, do they write the big majority opinions or are they the swing justice? And that didn't describe Scalia either way. Um, the way he got his influence was through the sheer force of his writing and his intellect. He would write cases, uh, write opinions, especially dissents in ways that attracted attention. It made law professors like me want to put his dissents in our case books for students to study. It made students want to read them. Uh, often the prose in Supreme Court opinions can be turgid and many you know, pages of lots of citations and, and um, text that's very dense and hard to read. Scalia wrote his in a conversational tone, never dumbed it down, but wrote it in a conversational tone. And in fact, I recently heard that Scalia would read his draft opinions out loud, either to his wife or his clerks or his friends, mm. to try to hear what they sounded like. And so you kind of hear Scalia's voice, if you knew what Scalia sounded like, you can hear Scalia's voice in your head reading this and kind of the cadence of it. And mm. uh, for, you know, for a writer uh, who's, uh, uh, or for a, a person who's communicating with writing, his writing really sounded like the way someone spoke. A, a, a fair amount of italics, exclamation points, things that you know ordinarily writers wouldn't do. I think you know they look like they're crutches, but it worked for Scalia because it really brought that conversational tone uh, across to, Interesting. Uh, yeah. to to the reader. Yeah. Uh, I, anyhow, I you know personal note happen to totally agree. Good writing is something that should sound like. Uh, you're talking um, in many instances. So uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting uh, way to look at what, what he wrote. Talk to me before. I, I've got some other aspects I want to ask you about, some of the things that are going on today, um, also uh, Gorsuch and, and, you know, that whole scene. Um, but, but one more on the, on the past, the, the disruptor title. Um, you, you compare Scalia to Gingrich and Trump, and say that he disrupted the judiciary the way uh, Gingrich did the House and Trump did the presidency. Um, and, and one of the lines he wrote really stood out to me. Um, Scalia claimed he alone had discovered the legitimate tools for constitutional and statutory interpretation. Um, swing that over to the executive branch, and I would have to agree that sounds very Trumpian. So, so talk to me about uh, uh, Scalia, the disruptor, and about your comparison of him to Gingrich and to Trump. Well, I think there's there are two levels of comparison. One is just in terms of ideology, they were similar. Scalia was a nationalist, populist, anti-elitist, 
a Harvard-educated anti-Ivy League person. You know, there's another contradiction. Uh, mm. Anti-immigrant, strong on national security. You know, a lot of the things that we'd say about those two. But, but more to the point, um, he changed what the Supreme Court is as an institution. So we talked about how he had these different tools for how cases should be analyzed and, and his views on statutory interpretation I think are now kind of the new orthodoxy. At least you start with the text of the statute and you use all of these tools of interpretation and look to dictionaries and all of these things. This has become kind of a regular thing. Even Justice Kagan, one of the more liberal justices, said we're all textualists now. Uh, <laughs> but he also uh, changed the nature, I think, of what it means to be a justice uh, in the public sphere. Hmm. So he was a public intellectual uh, there was a there was a period of time in the 1960s when justices were public figures, but they weren't political figures. Scalia was a public figure who would talk about his views and criticize the other justices. He said he liked his constitution dead, dead, dead about the Bush versus Gore case that ended the 2000 election, that very controversial case. He told people to ask about it. Oh, just get over it. Um, mm. He was out there and he helped make Supreme Court justices into the heroes and villains as we think of them today. You know, there's a reason that Justice Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, is out there dissing on Trump. Scalia kind of set the way in that and changed how we think of justice and also what's appropriate discourse. Although Scalia said he bemoaned the loss of civility in society, he could be among the nastiest, as we talked about. And I think that's maybe changed the way Supreme Court justices write their opinions. So the institution of the Supreme Court changed, just like Gingrich change the institution of the House of Representatives, and it seems like Trump is changing the presidency. So let's uh, transition. Let's talk about that politicization of the court, and let's talk about Gorsuch and the standoff in Congress. We all know it. Re Republicans refusing to consider um, Obama's constitutionally nominated justice. Um, and would that have occurred? It, my, my question to you is, one, um, if the justice being replaced were not Scalia, or two, if Scalia had not done what he'd done to make the court more political than it was before he arrived? I think it's really impossible to say. Certainly, um, replacing a conservative with a liberal, uh, especially when you've got Mitch McConnell going up against uh, Barack Obama, he was going to play hardball McConnell. So yeah. I think it probably would have would have gone down the same way. Uh, maybe it would have been different if it was a liberal justice that was being replaced, which you know wouldn't... Uh, change the number of liberals or conservatives on the court. Uh, but um, Scalia helped to polarize. I called him a polarizing figure in polarized times. He helped to polarize the court, but he was also uh, a, a, a creature or a victim of that polarization. And, uh, you know, it's not, we can't put it all on Scalia. And so I think, you know, we've reached a period where um, the court is very politicized. And now with the appointment of Gorsuch, we can say for the first time, that all of the conservatives on the Supreme Court have been appointed by Republican presidents and all the Dem uh, all the liberals on the Supreme Court have been appointed by Democratic presidents. I think we're going to increasingly think about the Supreme Court as a political institution. The Republican Supreme Court today did X or the Democrats on the court refused to, you know, and I think 
that's not really good for the institution, but I think that's the direction that things are heading. And was there anything in his writings? Did he did he have a consciousness about that? Did he recognize the increasing politicization? And if you know, maybe he he didn't feel necessarily responsible for it, but he was one of nine justices while it, you know sitting on the bench while it was occurring. D- did he write at all, kind of an awareness of it? I'm not aware of any writing. I would say the general view of the sitting justices is that the confirmation process is too politicized. I think none of them like to go through it, and all of them want to sail through, which is pretty uh, much what you would expect. Um, but he, he, you know, he had to see what was going on. And uh, I was recently asked whether Scalia would have approved of the blockade of Merrick Garland to his seat. Yeah, and it's a really interesting question. I don't know what the answer is to that, um, but uh, uh, you could see that. Uh, he was increasingly more partisan uh, in his old age. And uh, in fact, another book just came out on Justice Scalia by Brian Garner, who's a uh, a former uh, co-author and friend of Scalia, who said that Scalia was intrigued by Trump and sort of uh, thinking about supporting him early on. And so, uh, of course, he dies early into the presidential election season. So I don't know where things would have gone. We do know that Scalia's widow had Trump signs on her lawn. And so I really do see them as simpatico in a lot of ways, although I think the coarseness of Trump would have probably made uh, Scalia uh, wince, uh, at least in terms of style, if not in terms of substance. Ended up uh, offending him. And and by the way, side point, just to be clear, two books, but we should be reading yours first, right? Well, uh, they're very different books. Uh, I never met Justice Scalia. I'm not telling you what made him tick inside the other book is uh, uh, a book of um, recollections of a friend. So it depends on what you're trying to get. There's also another book that just came out, a collection of Scalia's speeches called Scalia Speaks, edited by his son, uh, Christopher Scalia, and Ed Whelan. They're, they're a delightful set of speeches, right? This is the thing about Scalia. You can think that he did some things that you don't agree with and that were terrible, and you can also appreciate, or at least I can appreciate, his writing, his turn of phrase, his his intellect so uh um there's if got time there's plenty of reading about there's a lot out there well he you know he was very you know he made quite the impact in in all sorts of ways um just before uh you you head out the door um wanted to get your view on potentially his view based on you know his writings and and the things he'd done on some of the you know big issues today um, one of them, the ability to indict a sitting president. Uh, you know, we are all following uh, everything Mueller, and that's one of the, uh, you know, one of the topics that that folks talk about. Um, you know, un, untested, never been done, never been, you know, never been tested. Do you have a sense of what Scalia might think about that? Well, the closest major writing he did on this question that I'm aware of is uh, his dissent in a case called Morrison versus Olson, which is about the the, the old special counsel uh, statute. A special counsel uh, like Mueller, except Mueller was appointed through a different process. Yeah. Under this old special counsel process, uh, the special counsel was independent of the executive. And Scalia thought this was terrible, that it was going to really put pressure on uh, administration officials to cooperate with this council and really undermine the separation of powers. Scalia was a big believer in the separation of powers. He was also a big believer in what's come to be known as the unitary executive theory, which means that everyone in the executive branch serves at the pleasure of the president and everyone should be under the president's ultimate authority. 
in that circumstance, then you know, having who who would indict the president? That would be the Department of Justice, which is part of the executive branch. And so, I think probably Scalia's preferred method of dealing with a problem of a president uh, potentially committing crimes is that we have a constitutional remedy for that. It's impeachment and removal from office. It involves the congressional branch, and that is the way to deal with these kinds of problems. And of course, we also give voters a chance to. Uh, vote uh, someone out of office after uh, they've served their first term. But, but, uh, not, so the, but not the judiciary. Well, right. So, so the, the judiciary um, gets uh, life tenure. Uh, no, but I mean a way, a way to deal with, you know, with a... Oh, a to deal, right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So the, the indictment uh, would uh, be brought by the Department of Justice or yep. a, a special counsel, and then the judiciary would handle. There's no question that... Um, uh, should uh, Mueller find any kind of evidence of criminal wrongdoing, whether it's obstruction or something else, by Trump, ultimately, I can't imagine the Supreme Court would not be getting involved in that uh, hmm. in that dispute, one way or another, whether there is an indictment or not. Right, uh, these or... cases seem like, as with just about every consequential issue in society, uh, everything seems to end up at the Supreme Court, and and, that, and that's part of the reason. I think Scalia was so interesting because he got to deal with some of the most important issues facing the United States over the last three decades. And and two more issues of the day today: um, Second Amendment coming. You know, obviously we all know what's going on, Parkland, uh, and and the rising um, you know questions around uh, gun rights and that sort of thing, um, especially in the shadow of the uh, uh, District of Columbia v. Heller. And, and I struck you wrote uh, one of your lines, his Second Amendment opinion in Heller seems unlikely to be overruled, but gun rights could be limited or expanded under that decision depending upon who sits on the court. I thought that was a really telling line given what we're going through now. Um, what, what would what would he be thinking about what's going on now, um, particularly vis-a-vis Heller? So in the Heller decision, the Supreme Court, uh, for the first time, recognized that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to bear arms, to own uh, weapons such as guns. And uh, Scalia's opinions, he said he was writing an originalist opinion, and there's a lot of parsing of the words and looking at the uh, the originalist uh, um uh, history at the time, but it does other things too, uh, including looking at uh, after ratification history, including looking at uh, current problems in society. And there's a line in the opinion, I don't know if it was originally written by Scalia or another justice like Justice Kennedy insisted on it, but there's a line in the opinion that says by deciding that there's this individual right to bear arms, we're not trying to cast doubt on laws that do things like bar felons or the mentally ill from getting guns or having reasonable restrictions for public safety. You know, you can't, the Second Amendment doesn't give you a right to go out and buy a bazooka. And so this uh, language has been used uh, since, uh, in about the decade since Heller, by the lower courts to uphold a variety of gun control restrictions. And the Supreme Court has not waded back into this issue uh, in almost that time. The only other gun case they decided was a case called McDonald, which came a few years later, where the court said the same Second Amendment right applies not just to the federal government, but against the states as well. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Justice Thomas dissented from the Supreme Court's decision not to hear a case out of California involving the constitutionality of background checks for gun owners. These are gun owners who already had 
had a background check for an earlier gun, and they were saying we shouldn't have to go through this again. And uh, Thomas wrote that the Second Amendment has really become a second-class right. It's kind of like an orphan. It's in the Supreme Court has its favorites. I could have imagined Scalia signing on to that, believing that um, uh, there has to be some meaningful judicial review if you're going to have a right, an individual right to bear arms. And so even though Scalia wrote that language in Heller that gave wide berth for gun control measures, he might have agreed with his fellow originalist Thomas that the courts got to give more guidance and that there must be some limits. In the meantime, Heller, despite being you know, written by a conservative, uh, being a decision that recognized a new gun right, is being interpreted by the lower courts in a way that it's allowing all this reg- uh, gun control regulation. And in fact, Justice Thomas said that the lower courts are resisting uh, the uh, Heller decision. And I thought the use of the word resistance in this context, especially in our <laughs> Trumpian moment, was quite telling. Yeah, maybe maybe not by accident. Um, last issue of the day, uh, um, gerrymandering. Uh, I would, you, you wrote recently about uh, the Maryland argument. Um, so you've got uh, Maryland, uh, you have other states, you have what's going on, you've got, uh, you know, obviously what happened with Pennsylvania. Um, Wisconsin has been in the news, uh, really just about every state, actually. North Carolina, there was Texas, um, issues all over. Um, what, what would Scalia be saying about the gerrymandering questions that are being raised before the Supreme Court today? Well, this one we know because in 2004, Justice Scalia wrote an opinion for four justices, so not a majority opinion, but a plurality opinion, an opinion for four justices, which said that even if extreme partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, there are no standards for the courts to be able to figure out what's uh, an impermissible use of uh, political information. No test. In, uh, in, uh, right. In, uh, in deciding this one has gone too far. He said, just like the Constitution tells the Senate they have to try uh, those who, uh, who have been impeached. It's not our job to figure out what it means to try someone. It's not the judiciary's job to decide when the normal political considerations, when you draw district lines, go over the line. And Scalia could get a fifth vote in that case, a case mm-hmm. from 2004 called Veef. The fifth vote was Anthony Kennedy, who couldn't decide what to do, who agreed with the liberals, let's keep the door open for these challenges, but agreed with Scalia that all the standards that have been proposed so far didn't work. And you saw it uh, in the recent argument in the Maryland gerrymandering case, where the, it's pretty clear that Kennedy is very upset about Democrats making it harder to elect that um, member of Congress who's a Republican just because he's a Republican, but still struggling, is there a standard? And it could well be that uh, Scalia's view that there there is no standard that the courts can apply may hold the day. And in fact, even if uh, that side loses and Kennedy agrees with the liberals to start policing this, uh, Kennedy's not going to be on the court forever. And if you think about uh, the justices that are going to be appointed after Kennedy, uh, Trump, if he gets another appointment, has said he's going to appoint justices like Scalia. And Gorsuch is about as close to a Scalia clone without the charm uh, as uh, as you can imagine. And so in the long run, Scalia's views on the question of gerrymandering that courts should stay out may hold the day. And as technology makes it easier to create effective gerrymanders, we're really looking at a situation where things could get even worse in the next round of redistricting. Wow. Well, that's. Uh, I wanted that's, to kind of get end you with a you know kind of an uplifting. Note. Yeah, thank you, thanks. Uh, that's you. You really succeeded there. That's uh, that's well done, Rick. Uh, well, except for that last part, 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time and, uh, and, and the book. Uh, a great and um, an important read and a different take on, uh, on Scalia. So uh, thank you on all fronts. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. That was my conversation with Rick Hassan. What a thoughtful guy. My thanks to Rick for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you.